Welcome to Burning Platforms, a podcast about the politics of technology from the Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis. I'll be joined by regular panellists, Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Health Engine CEO Dan Stinton, as well as special guest, critic and author of There Be Monsters, Richard King. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. So it's been a few months since our last chat, but it's great to have our regular panel back in the room. Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea. G'day, Lizzie. Hi, Peter. And Dan Stinton, CEO of Health Engine and all-round good guy. Hi, Dan. G'day, Peter. And we've also got our special guest who we'll be deeping, um, going to the deep dive with later on, um, the critic and author of the book, Baby Monsters, which I always feel like you should do it like you're growling like a pirate or something, Richard King. Um, thanks for joining us, Richard. Thanks, Peter. Hi, guys. So it has been a little, I reckon it's been three or four weeks since we um, we all got together and there's been a fair bit going on around the globe, a landmark, landmark test case or a couple of them in, in the States, the big writer's strike. But let's start with the movement, movement in the 40-year journey to see some movement on privacy laws. Lizzie, what came out of the Attorney General's um, office last week and what do we think about it? So the Attorney General has uh, published his response to the review of the Privacy Act, which um, sounds boring, but for many people in space, it's very exciting because we move closer now to privacy reform than we've ever been really. And it's quite meaningful as well because the Privacy Act was introduced 40 years ago and there has been there have been changes to it, but uh, not substantial ones that really address the key challenges of the digital age. And Australia really lags behind lots of other comparable democracies uh, in protecting people's personal information and, uh, you know, kind of setting up some guardrails and some um, boundaries around the operation of surveillance capitalism. And so the response from the Attorney General really signals that this is going to happen, that there's a real uh, appetite for reform among this Labor government. Uh, They've essentially accepted the vast majority of recommendations made by the review. They've accepted some of them with a bit more consultation required, but uh, that is a pretty significant step. Um, this review has been going on for years. It was first recommended by the ACCC in um, coming out of their digital platforms inquiry, looking at the, the power of platforms like Google and Facebook. And so there's a competition element to it, a consumer element to it, but there's also, you know, a human rights element to it, which is what I'm interested in. And essentially what the Attorney General said, yes, he wants to update the definition of personal information, which, for example, doesn't include things like locational information. Um, Yes, they want to introduce a um, fair and reasonable test, so it's not just ticker box consent, that it's actually there's limits on what you can use personal information for once you've you've taken it from somebody. And then uh, also the introduction of a statutory tort, which has been on the table in Australia um, among various law reform bodies for decades. Uh, so a private right of action um, to be able to sue companies who invade your privacy or individuals, and also a general kind of cause of action to to enforce rights under the Privacy Act, which would be a huge step forward. And, you know, in the United States, they don't have that, and tech companies have been really resisting it, um, you know, investing a lot in lobbying to try and stop that happening. So the attorneys accepted that recommendation with a bit more consultation. And there's a few other things in there that I think are interesting, the getting rid of the small business exemption. Some some things that people won't be surprised about, which is the uh, attorney has rejected the recommendation that the political party's exemption be removed. So political parties will still essentially be able to do what they like with personal information, which has uh, surprised absolutely no one. Um, but yeah, Albeit with some safeguards around it. 
albeit with some specific safeguards, as is the case, I think, with the journalism exemption. Yeah, and I I think what I was bracing for was a lot of opposition to this, particularly from the mainstream media, whose business model does rely on personal information now much more than it used to, particularly given that they're in the business of kind of targeted advertising. Um, uh, But the response from the media, I think, has been pretty mild, uh, dare I say it, reasonable. Uh, You know, there's some people who are objecting. Small businesses don't like... um, the possibility of losing their exemption and uh, advertisers, Dan, as a former ad man, uh, you'll be not, not at all shocked to learn that advertisers don't like this idea. And then, of course, the Australian was running um, a few objection lines along those kinds of lines. So there's a, there's a bit of political shenanigans, I think, going, going on. I'm sure the Business Council of Australia will come out and oppose it. But in general, I think this is, you know, this is a good time for privacy advocates. They feel like there's movement and that a lot of the necessary reforms are on the table. It's a question of whether it will happen in the form of legislative reform. Yeah. So we'll see. So I guess it's important not to lock in these wins because up there are a number that are like agreed in principle and need further consultation. And we know that that always ends up being an opportunity for vested interests to pull things back. But I think... Most of us in the space were saying this is heading in the right direction. I know both you and I were out there not backing it in, but saying this is heading in the right direction when it came out. Dan, I was interested in your um, colleagues from the advertising profession. There is a particular quote that I've pulled out from MI3 from um, one of the um, policy people at IAB who has a concern around the consent changes. The main problem is that targeting needs to be both fair and reasonable. So um, is that a fair and reasonable concern about these laws? Yeah, I saw Sarah Walden's uh, comments in that article. Um, uh, Look, I don't think that the concerns that she's raising are, um, well, I don't think there's a significant issue. And and I think like Lizzie has outlined, I think that what the AG um, has outlined here is a, it's a, pretty good start actually it's a pretty good package and it surprises me how far they've gone um on that fair and reasonable question peter i mean yeah now the collection and use of consumer data needs to be fair and reasonable that's still ill-defined but nonetheless it's a pretty good starting position and um the other advantage of that by the way is that then you don't have to burden the consumer by asking for consent if it is fair and reasonable which you know is means that at least we're going to have some respite from those consent banners which litter the internet now and achieve virtually nothing because no one bothers to do anything other than hit yes anyway so yeah i mean should advertising be fair and reasonable? Clearly, yes. That's a really great thing. And I think that um, the the advertising industry uh, is, you know, we'll, we'll come on board with this in time. I don't think there's 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 um, an argument to be mounted against that. I would have liked to have seen um, a little bit more uh, on the no-go zones or, uh, sorry to say it again, but permits limitations. I think the missed opportunity with what has been put out is that there's still no guardrails put on um, really large tech platforms being able to collect consumer data in one platform and use it in a completely different context for their own ends. And I think that's bad for privacy and I also think it's bad for competition and it's a real mm. missed opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, someone else is going to pick up the baton now and bang on about this with the government and, and hopefully convince them to, to put something in place because it really that, that's the one area where Australia could lead the world if we were to go just that step further and say, you know what, you can't read people's Gmails and sell them targeted advertising uh, on YouTube. You know, it's it's pretty reasonable thing to, I think, restrict uh, I think every consumer or every reasonable consumer would agree with it. 
And it would also have the impact of allowing smaller players in the advertising space to be able to compete. So it's a shame that that's not there. But look, I mean, it's amazing they've done this. I think it's it's a, it's incredible that it's come out before The Voice as well, which I wasn't expecting. I don't think many people were. And I think it, it's pretty promising beginnings. So let's see where it goes. Richard, you're from the world of um, words and um, literature. Um, there have been very few songs sung or poems written about privacy law reform. Do you? <laughs> is it? How, how do you see it? Um, and is this something that is just a, a few geeks like us getting excited about, or is there a is there a b- bigger piece here? Um, yeah, I no, I don't think it's I don't think it's geeky. I think I think it's important and to have these. Uh, to have these things in place but I do think that the whole sort of regulation discussion if you like does sort of leave unmolested the bigger issues about what this tech is doing to our being so to speak yeah I mean as Dan was saying uh, the, the the test will be the fair and reasonable um definition right what does that mean I mean we all know that advertisers don't sell us products they sell us versions of ourselves right we've known this since Vance Packard and uh, and it's kind of uh, yeah I'm, I, it'll be interesting to see how it how it um, emerges but at least it's a sign of a, a a new seriousness I suppose you know a, a, a recognition at the very least that there's something uh, there's something amiss here people don't like it generally speaking I think the kind of discussions that we have around privacy and this isn't uh, meant to sound um, uh, dismissive at all. But they, they do tend to be the kinds of discussion that one would expect to be having in a liberal society where privacy, et cetera, et cetera, and autonomy and uh, and yet the ownership, ownership of one's data is sort of um, is sort of stressed, is esteemed, is the is the thing that, mm. that, that kind of gets people going. And I suppose in the book, I don't want to jump the gun on that, but I suppose in the book I wanted to get underneath that and start thinking about more, if you like, existential questions about the qualitative effect that these technologies are having on our on our lives and uh, subjectivities. But uh, no, I think it's a positive move overall. Yeah, one, one of the points I think a number of us have made is that there's all these sort of very, very urgent inquiries going on at government around AI at the moment. There's 19 of them on, on board, all from different departments. The privacy reforms are kind of the building blocks. Like that's almost the foundations of having anything sensible come out the other yeah. end. So, um, yeah, hopefully it lands and hopefully there will be people writing poems and songs about it at some stage in the future. Um, Dan, let's move on to the big cases in the states. The Federal Trade Commissioner has um, launched proceedings against both Google and Amazon. Do you want to give us the greeting card versions of both of those? And I know why you don't want to choose your favourite um, card when it comes to big tech being prosecuted. Which one do you think is more significant? Um, yeah, huge month for antitrust. Um, uh, as you touched on, so um, uh, last month the, the US Justice Department uh, took action against Google for effectively abusing its power to, to monopolise search and, and did that mainly through paying billions of dollars to be the default search engine on uh, Apple and, and Samsung devices. Uh, that that kicked things off. Um, from what I'm reading, I'm no lawyer, I'll defer to Lizzie on this, but from what I'm reading, that one is a, is a relatively strong case. Uh, and then last week, in, in what has been long expected, the, the FTC, uh, led by Lena Khan, finally launched their major loose lawsuit against Amazon uh, and essentially accused it of having a, a monopoly in e-commerce um, and, and using its power, if you like, in the, in the online retail industry to 
to, I guess, illegally disadvantage its rivals, you know, leveraging tactics that punish sellers for offering lower prices elsewhere and coercing businesses into paying, um, you know, fairly exorbitant fees to use its fulfillment services. Um, I think they're both significant, um, but I think because of, particularly in Australia, where Amazon is growing but isn't as dominant as it is in the US, I think particularly in Australia, the one that is more significant for us is Google. And I think in general, the one that is more significant is Google. Is Google. Because the reason is that, you know, the Google is effectively the gateway to the internet for most Australians and most people, in fact, around the world. And because of their dominance, you've basically the internet is a bit shit, excuse my language. Um, the, the 10 blue links that was search, uh, you know, a decade or so ago has really been replaced with about five or six sponsored links. And if you're lucky, you see one or two organic links somewhere down the bottom of the page. And what that means is consumers really can't, uh, avoid uh, or tend to not being able to avoid unless they really try being able to click on something from Google search um, and avoid the ads. And what that means for the suppliers is that um, the suppliers are effectively having to pay a tax just to be discovered online because, because Google is the front door to the internet. If you want to be discovered online, you have to pay the Google tax. And if you don't pay the Google tax, you don't get discovered. And this is a company which, you know, is siphoning, uh, siphoning all of its profits over to low tax jurisdictions um, and not paying um, not paying its fair share of tax elsewhere, so it's it's a pretty um, a pretty disastrous circumstance. And I guess you know I just I'll end on this point. I think just imagine a world where Bing and Yahoo had been able to uh, keep a reasonable share of the market. In that world, we would probably have a circumstance where um, you know there'd be more opportunity for organic discovery online, less obligation on companies to have to pay this tax to to Google in order to be discovered. Um, more power also to people like publishers or pu companies like publishers because they'd be able to work with uh, one um, search engine against others and, and potentially, you know, reduce the, the dominance of Google in that front as well. And we just have a better internet. So um, that's the one that I'm hoping for the most. I, I really hope that it succeeds. But, um, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, so who knows whether it's, it's going to get anywhere. I, I hope so. You're a lawyer, Lizzie. Does this have an application in Australia, what happens in the States? I mean, technically, no, because uh, we have different rules around antitrust um, that, you know, rules around what's permissible in terms of mergers and, and the like, although there are proposals to change that, uh, particularly in light of the digital platforms inquiry. Um, but, you know, obviously, Lena Khan is a pretty significant appointment. Um, she mm. was appointed off the back of a paper that she wrote, uh, which was called Amazon's antitrust, the, the um, and. God, the Amazon's antitrust paradox, which he essentially talks about. Oh, you're going to correct me. I was no, 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 go. <laughs> yeah, um, he essentially talks about how, until relatively recently, competition law was focused on consumer welfare as being the primary lens through which you judge uh, the effectiveness of a market. And that that is now changing because something like Google is free for the consumer to use, but in fact, there are consequences for how the market is operating in the background in the way that Dan described. And of course, Amazon is the same because it offers a platform for goods and services that is free to access, but it can shape then what you buy through other mechanisms, including prioritizing some results in search, um, you know, and, 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 and having uh, the capacity to surveil quite closely its competitors so it can sell as well as offer um, people 
the capacity to sell in a marketplace and that makes it particularly powerful. And what I think Khan is doing is displacing that method of judging the effectiveness of markets from an antitrust perspective and saying consumer welfare doesn't cut it anymore. Um, and again, that sounds kind of tedious, but I think it is quite um radical in the sense that it's a new way to look at the problems that are created by these large tech platforms, which uh, which until recently used to, to sell their credentials or um, justify themselves and use their social license or create a social license for themselves based on delivering these free services to people and therefore making the internet better, being able to, you know, um, uh, give people access to things that they don't have to pay for and then essentially sell sell their eyeball time to advertisers mm. behind the scenes. And, and that is a good thing because it does start to allow us to have a decent conversation as to why this kind of monopolisation is very, very damaging, not just to markets, I think, but also how we see the world. You know, what how we see the world will be... Um, will be shaped by what Google puts in its top 10 links inevitably and um, how how companies make money for the purposes of advertising will shape how they uh, show us content. And so all these things are obviously quite intimately linked with the, uh, um, the, the politics of the time, I would argue, not just consumer welfare, not just um, the freedom of markets, but also, um, you know, the freedom of individuals and um, collective uh, ideas of what it is to have a public discussion or a, a public space. And so I think it is quite critical to, for that to be exposed. Um, and so we can have a proper conversation about it. But, you know, I'm I, I'm interested in consumer welfare rights but and consumer rights generally, but I think there are bigger questions that are much more important to have as a result of these cases. It does strike me, Richard, that the fact that um, laws that are basically set up to protect the integrity of capitalism are the only levers that are really um, at the disposal of the states to actually control these big, big tech giants. Um, yeah. It's yeah. Um, uh, I, I, that, that's exactly the point um, I would like to. You know, I would have liked to to make. Uh, Larry Summers wrote a paper. <sighs> gosh, in 2000 or something like that, saying that in terms of sort of how capitalism has worked traditionally, data doesn't work, you know. So there was a lot of excitement actually on the left after the uh, after the global debt crisis because, one, people, you know, in that milieu felt that things were sort of coming apart and, two, the, te the technologies, the kind of businesses that were emerging were based on data, which is, um, to use the to use the technical phrase, a zero marginal cost technology, which is to say that it collapses prices um, because it's a non, uh, is it a non-rival good? Yes, it's a, a, a non-rival good. That's right. So I, you know what I mean by that. But um, that means that the only way in which um, businesses like Amazon and Google can kind of protect themselves is through monopolization. And this was the point, really, that Larry Summers was conceding quite quite early on in the piece, you know. So I actually think these antitrust this, these antitrust developments are quite quite significant and um, could have uh, quite quite interesting consequences. Yeah, interesting mm. to watch. And listen, the good news doesn't stop there either. Um, we've also got the news out of Hollywood um, straight off the phone that the. Um, the double strike has reached um, somewhat of a, um, a breakthrough. The um, Writers Guild of America um, last week reached agreement with the, the film and TV producers on their contract. This wasn't a normal contract negotiation because embedded in the claim were guarantees about the way that artificial intelligence would be used in the, um, the development of, of cultural content. Um, and we've talked about this 
a couple of weeks ago. We um, actually ran some research on the Australian public trying to test their level of comfort with AI-generated um, cultural content. And it, it, it surprised me the tolerance um, for both AI-generated um, books and AI-generated films, particularly by younger people. Notwithstanding that, placing the um, protections um, around this through an um, industrial and workplace frame um, seems like um, it is in sync with the best thinking in how to manage the rollout of AI more broadly across the economy. And um, I know, Dan, your old profession of the media is also looking at this, you know, the proposition that I, um, what is the difference between human-generated content and um, AI-generated content in the eyes of a consumer and should they be told about it? But B, should a human's work be drift-netted and repurposed by some form of machine learning. So I don't know if you've been following the dispute and what it means more broadly to human curation of, and creation of content. Yeah, I have. I mean, it, it's it, it's a really encouraging outcome, actually. A shame it took this long to get here. But parts of it are encouraging, put it that way. What I like about the deal that's been struck is that it kind of preserves, or not kind of, it, it seems to preserve the best use of the technology while excluding the most harmful. That is, the writers can utilise AI to, you know, improve the their output and whatever else and remain in control of it, but the studios can't train AI on what has already been created and effectively, you know, exclude humans from the process going forward, which is a... Which is, you know, this kind of makes common sense. I think, uh, well, it makes common sense for for people who care about human creativity. I guess, um, I think that's a great outcome. Hopefully, it sets a precedent for other industries. The thing, a point I would make though, is that it it does show that. I mean, the writers had power in this. Their strike made a difference. Um, I, I obviously was comparing this to my old industry in media and news, and the fact that really the news industry doesn't have power in this circumstance. And so as a consequence, what's happened is that these large language models have already gone and trained all of their um, all their bots and whatever else on the content that has been produced by journalists and Wikipedia and the like in order to be able to, you know, if someone asks on the origins of the war in Ukraine, for example, um, then, you know, all of these bots can deliver a pretty compelling answer, which has been trained on our, uh, sort of not ours anymore, on, on media's content on Wikipedia. And yet, you know, the only way that the media industry can fight back against that is really with with uh, collusion, which is outlawed as part of antitrust. So there's it's much harder for some parts of the industry to fight back against this because uh, it's just the, the genie's already out of the bottle. So um, anyway, I'm I'm not sure if that's a somber note to finish on, but I'm I'm hopeful that at least the best elements of this deal can be applied to other areas where there's there's still a chance of fighting back. How do you um, look at this as someone that works um, around employment law? Um, I, I'm, I'm ploughing through um, a fantastic book, Power and Progress, at the moment by Darren Asimlu, which basically posits that the the way to unlock productivity is to put the power of the development of the technology in the hands of the workers and build countervailing power. And it feels like the, the little sort of guardrails that at least Hollywood's put around their creation is the start of that. But can you see it only being for very privileged, well-paid um, workers in an elite industry or can this work more broadly? 
I actually think that a lot of the people who have to work very, very closely with technology whose jobs have transformed significantly in the last 20 years tend to be people who are lower skilled or classified as lower skilled because that's a, a term of art in classification statistics of labour. I think it, it carries some moral weight, which it shouldn't because a lot of these jobs that are classified as low skill are in fact highly skilled. I, I've written about this before looking at people who work in, for example, fast food industries, in factories and places like Amazon factories where you have to collaborate extremely closely with technology uh, and it's often in various ways inefficient or not not working well but um, you know these workers sort of have to create workarounds um, but they actually are starting to treat it uh, in recent years as an an organising issue that you should be able to um, put this into workplace agreements and the like. And there's all sorts of unions organising around this that, in fact, they become quite high-skilled jobs where, um, you know, how uh, workers use this technology can um, can be quite powerful in the sense that it obviously creates inefficiencies for the boss, but it also means that the withdrawal of your labour can be quite significant. Um, but also you can start to have it as a, something on the table in the course of negotiating the terms of your employment. Um, you know, Amazon is famous for um, automated terminations, for example, where people didn't meet certain criteria. And I think there's grounds to say that shouldn't be permissible, for example, that, you know, these are things that you could put into an agreement if you were an organised uh, workforce. Um, so there's those kinds of more extreme examples. But even things like, um, you know, in places like when, I, when I've talked to people who work in supermarkets before, they talk about how automated um, checkouts mean there's fewer and fewer staff in these um, kinds of environments, which make, can make it difficult or unsafe, and that that can be a, a way in which you can start to, um, an, an access upon which you can start to organise as well. So it's funny, I think, when you think about technology or or artificial intelligence is these very sophisticated high art forms of technology that exist in places like Hollywood, when the reality is that there's lots and lots of automation of ma middle management, for example, and uh, what are traditionally classified as lower skilled jobs or skill or jobs for, for which you don't often need a, a further degree is, is the reality um, more than the, the weighted term. And that that's often a place in which organizing like this has already been going on for mm. some time. Yeah. Um, the bit I love in the, the power and um, progress book is the notion that when the technology is driven to either automate or surveil, the benefits just go up and are concentrated in the owners of capitalists only. And he, he comes up with the frame MU, machine usefulness. And when the technology is used to create better tools for workers, then it, that's actually when you unlock productivity and also create a fairer distribution of, of the benefits of the technology. So... Um, that's probably a nice segue into our deep dive with Richard. Um, your, your book is part of almost a growing genre in AI horror. Um, there's um, a number of other books out at the moment, Brian Merchant's Blood in the Machine, Yanis Varoufakis's Techno-Feudalism. Um, so there is a wave here of people that are coming at this from a broader than just a tech perspective. What was the motivation for the book and what was the process on putting it together, Richard? Yeah, sure. Well, the um, Monsters might be a good place to start uh, an answer to that question. So uh, as you're Listeners will know, here be monsters or here be dragons. Uh, Hicks sunt dracones was a, was a phrase that used to appear on old maps in order to indicate uncharted ter ter territories. So it's a, it's a warning and the book is a warning. But uh, the it, it's not a, 
warning so much well it is a warning about the technologies themselves but i don't think the monsters necessarily in here in the technologies themselves and um, we all know about the sort of the sci-fi cliche of the sort of rogue ai that you know becomes so powerful that it crosses some sort of threshold into consciousness and then starts quibbling about who's in charge or you know crying at the sight of three-legged dogs just you know depending on who's who's uh, di directing the movie and that and that's a form of monster right and and it's a monster because there's ambiguity about its status in the same way that there's ambiguity about whether or not a zombie is alive or dead or you know whether a, a vampire is a human being or a bat and, and again alive or dead i guess um and that's the source of what freud calls the uncanny um, that's why monsters kind of creep us out because they're, they're, there's ambiguity about their status. What category do they fall into? They're, they're liminal things. They fall between the fall between the stools, if you like. Um, what interests me, though, is um, the extent to which immersion and our increasing immersion in a world of increasingly transformative machines is making us, so to speak, uncanny to one another, to ourselves and to one another. So in what, in what, to what extent and in what ways are these incredibly powerful technologies transforming or not transforming so much as running against the grain of our, of our human being. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a book about what we want from technology, but the question of what we want from, what we want from anything, I guess, is also a question about what we are. Um, and it seems to me that the technological developments of recent years are so striking and so um, so world changing that we really need to be asking some very deep questions about um, where it is that we're going and what it is that we want. So can I ask you talk a bit about Mary Shelley in there and Frankenstein? Um, mm. I just want I, I just love looking at Victorian characters who always think they're kind of um, more interesting than you can ever imagine when you start out investigating them. Uh, and I've got a particular fondness for, well, not so much Lord Byron, but more his daughter, Ada Lovelace, as many yes. um, computer geeks do. But um, what I was going to ask you was, can you tell us what you think is the biggest kind of misunderstanding, I suppose, about Frankenstein in the modern sense that is worth correcting to better able to understand technology today? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's kind of uh, perhaps not the book. It's uh, people who read the book will 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 I th I think understand um, you know what it's about. I think it's it's pretty clear. But yeah, if it, to the extent that the book, you know, and more than any other book, this book has a kind of afterlife. You know, it has a kind of presence within the culture, doesn't it? That that isn't ne isn't necessarily tied to whether or not you've read it or not. And the idea is that it's a sort of it's a sort of um, it's a sort of disaster movie type thing, you know, it's kind of, you know, guy goes too far and, you know, he creates this machine. It's 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 the original version, actually, of the rogue AI story that I was talking about before. It's interesting that depictions of Frankenstein, you know, always have the mechanical things, you know, it's kind of half an AI and half a zombie, you know. Uh, actually, he's not described like that, or the monster's not described like that uh, at all in um, the book. But what the book is actually about course is uh is a man victor frankenstein um who has if you like um a mechanistic idea of 
human being. And it's that. And he's he's depicted as someone who is, if you like, insufficiently educated. Okay, so he's, you know, he he thinks that he can, you know, take take bits and pieces from these mouldering cadavers and sort of bring them together into a human being because that's what a human being is. It's just, you know, bits of tech, if you like, that you can bring into a, uh, that you can sort of, you know, synthesize into a, in, in, into a new organism. And, and of course, <laughs> spoiler alert, it all goes very wrong, <laughs> um, as, I think, as I think people know. Um, so it's sort of that it's sort of that original, uh, you know, idea. But it's it's a it's a lot deeper than that kind of rogue AI story because it is about um, a, you know a person Victor who who has who simply has the wrong idea about the kind of thing that he is and the kinds of things that we are. And I think that's that that's perhaps the the, the but not not so much misconception, but the thing that gets lost. Isn't there a point of of unintended consequences that's part of that. I guess it's a, probably a lesser point, but but nonetheless, stay stay with me. I, I, I might lose the floor, but I'll, I'll give it a crack. Um, I, I often think about Steve Jobs describing computing. I think as a, or I think it might have been mobile computing as a as a bicycle for the mind, and starting out with this idea of the tech being able to be to sort of be used for. I guess kind of utopian purposes or for progress or whatever else. And I think, look, I, I'm the resident tech bro in these conversations, so I I absolutely am in favour of all the great things that have come, obviously, from the internet and smartphones, whatever everything else. But I think nothing demonstrates where this goes wrong more than when you go to a music concert and you you see a moment where, or you have a, a rare moment where there's a crescendo in the music or there's a really beautiful point of the, on the concert and. You know, 20 years ago, that would be such a rare moment where you'd often have hundreds or if not thousands of people that would be in that moment for that briefest of time. And it was it's it's why you went to a music concert. It's what made it brilliant. And it is absolutely fundamentally destroyed by everyone having a phone in their pocket now because everyone whips their camera out and takes a video of it for the purpose of putting on social media later. And it just cheapens the experience substantially. Now, clearly smartphones and everything else have made our lives better in many many ways but the the downstream consequences of that are really really negative and isn't that sort of part of the message of frankenstein as well as that you, you can start with all the best intentions in the world but because we don't know where the technology will lead us it ends up ends up enslaving so i may have lost i may have lost you all but but tell me um tell me if i have oh, i think i think that's a, a very good point i mean it's interesting what you say you know it can be used well or it can be used badly i mean that that broadly speaking is what what's called the instrumental view of technology, and it's probably the one that's dominant in Silicon Valley, and it has a lot of currency. The idea is that there is, you know, there there are, if you like, just tools. There's just this, you know, this smartphone here, and you know, you can use that well. We can use it badly, and um, there's nothing particularly about the technology uh, itself that demands examination. But there's another view of technology, which is the one I'm sort of channeling in the book which is the substantive view which is the view that technologies both shape and are shaped by the culture into which they emerge and i think that's that that touches on what you're saying um of course i, I don't think the smartphone would have emerged at all um i, I think it's clear that the smartphone wouldn't have, have emerged at all um in a society set up along very different lines um so um the fact that we have this technology at all is a is a consequence of the kind of 
um, society and the kind of priorities that that society has, uh, that gave birth to it. And and then, yes, there are other unintended consequences. Um, And, you know, looking at your phone in those moments is one of them. But looking at your phone, you know, at all is also one of them. And it's interesting how... um, this this device or collection of devices that we call a collection of technologies that we call the smartphone has kind of introduced relations of absence into kind of physical spaces. So whereas once you would walk through a university uh, campus and everybody would be up and about and they wouldn't necessarily be talking to one another, but now they're on their phones. They're all looking down, you know. Uh, well, half of them are anyway. I don't want to over, overstate it. Um, I'd be interested to know what you what you think the <laughs> the good things about it are. I mean, yes, it they they connect us, um, but it seems to me that in many ways, perhaps perhaps not perhaps the smartphone in combination with social media, what what they're doing oftentimes is kind of selling us back the thing that we feel that we lack, which is to say meaningful connection with other people. But what they're doing, especially the social media platforms, of course, is selling it back to us in morbid form. That's to say in a form that doesn't give us the kind of recognition that we need in order to flourish as human beings. Uh, If we didn't know it before COVID, we certainly knew it one week in, into the lockdowns anyway. For, For whatever reason, human beings need to be you know, in the same space, it's not enough just to have grandma on the screen. You have to have her in the room, maybe not all the time, but <laughs> some of the time. Um, and uh, we don't do well in circumstances where that's not uh, the case. So I think there's a case that one could make for kind of standing back from screen culture in general and just thinking about um just thinking about the kind of the deep effects and the long-term effects um, and the deep roots indeed of this kind of, this form of mediation. Can I just say that I, I find that interesting in that I, I'm not a tech exceptionalist, but I do, for instance, think this medium where people are in a shared um, environment effectively inline rather than online is really interesting. And Lizzie and Dan and I started doing this over Zooms during lockdown. And I think, you know, it was a couple of years of doing this before we actually all were in the same room at the same time. So it's interesting though, because there is no real business model behind this interaction, which is why we do it as a hobby. Whereas um, the bits where where, where, um, the markets take the technology and have their own theory of, of of value and exploitation is when it becomes something other than itself. Absolutely, yeah, and 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 the uh, absolutely, and 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 it doesn't make sense to be kind of anti-technology or pro-technology. You know, de- technological creatures is what we are. You know, the, the the use of stone tools predates the emergence of Homo sapiens by some three million years. So we woke up into technology in the same way that anyone listening to this woke up in technology mm. this morning, you know, in the form of blankets and a bed and a roof over their heads. You know, there is no human being uh, without uh, technology. And um, and so uh, what I'm saying is that we need to evolve a more sort of reflective, reflexive relationship to technology where we can think in broad terms, you know, outside of that market paradigm, if you like, about what this might do, about where this comes from, about what it's doing to our kids, et cetera, et cetera um and yeah that's uh, uh hopefully a, a, an interesting uh, way of 
um, looking at it, I talk about the um, techno-critical tradition, which seems to me to have gone rather quiet at exactly the point in history where it's really, really needed. So Neil Postman, who wrote very well about television back in the day, um, describe you know says that technologies are ecological okay so they 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 change the human environment in the same way that a drop of dye changes a glass of clear water so you add the printing press into old europe and you don't get old europe plus the printing press you get a different europe altogether a europe from which other technologies that might not have emerged under other circumstances will emerge okay so um that's but Richard, isn't that a isn't that a better Europe? Well, that's an interesting question, Dan. Um and it's inter- and, and and it's it's striking how many uh how many times printing sort of comes up in these discussions. Well, I I, I introduced it myself, so I can't say that it, it came up randomly in this case. But you know, when I'm uh, also perhaps slightly biased of having worked for 20 years in the media. So but but yeah, nonetheless, yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd love yeah, to know your, your take. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, some sometimes, you know, around 2011, this was this was very kind of striking. Um, when it was all kicking off in the Maghreb and in, in the in the Middle East and with the Occupy movement and the Indignados and and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and there was a lot of energy around the around the new tech and the Facebook revolution, the Twitter revolution. Is that people, you know, the, the people who were sort of advocating for this view would say, you know, the people who are, you know, so, who are asking questions about this stuff are like, they're like the people who are against printing and all that kind of stuff. Well, okay, but let's look at printing. Yes, you get the democratization of religion. Yes, you get um, the spread of literacy eventually. Uh, and yes, you get the emergence of what we now call uh, the public sphere. But you also get imagined communities, which by which I mean just the, you know, people identifying with people to whom they are not physically present. So you get nationalism, you get imperialism. Um, a guy in Melbourne, a friend of mine, Guy, guy Rundle, the other day in Melbourne said, you know, it, he was talking about Gutenbergism, which is a great word. It's his word for the kind of people who think everything before the printing press was primitive. And any kind of alternative to it is just, you know, just it is not up to snuff. It's kind, kind of stuff that you get in the Australian all the time, you know. Um, and he's saying, you know, the book gives you Auschwitz. And that's not to say, and it does, um, but that's not to say that printing is a good thing or a bad thing. Yes, human beings make progress. There are also forms of regress in the world. What we need to get away from is that kind of teleological view of human um development that is so kind of marbled into the way in which we think about technology because you know as we know some of the technologies we have we would be very happy to be without you know people are going to cinemas and watching Oppenheimer at the moment I I can't I can't think of many people that I know know who don't think that the world would be a much better and safer place if we didn't have nukes you know Mm. so you know even even the history of printing is complicated um uh i would say um and it's not about kind of weighing it on the scales it's just about evolving a new relationship to it that kind of that is that is more uh techno critical if you like i wanted to focus a little bit more on the literature stuff literature stuff because i like um cross-disciplinary approaches to understanding technology because that's sort of Ooh. like w- what I've tried to do at least in terms yeah. of my writing. One of the people that comes to mind when 
I'm reading about this, and particularly when you're just talking, is Ursula Le Guin because she writes that book, she writes that essay about how she's criticised often for not being a science fiction writer because she's got a good quote and I'm now going to mash it up, but she says something like, most science fiction is is interested in penetrating weapons and men hitting each other over the head with with um, blunt objects, you know, that are with mm. lasers essentially. Mm. And um, I think, and she's always treated as not being properly science fiction because it doesn't involve uh, spaceships and um, and big weapons and stuff like that. And then she has this carrier bag theory of fiction that, in fact, I mean, now I'm kind of verbaling her a bit, but the carrier bag is a form of technology and it's actually a life-giving form of technology and it's something that was created and kind of managed and used by women um, who would, you know, collect and store food um, mm. for periods in which food wasn't available, but it's not treated as technology and it's not perceived as being life-giving or um, absolutely critical to our existence. And there's a gendered reason for that, as you know, as well as a, a larger political one that comes from using the power of, of literature and, and storytelling to advance a particular vision of technology that serves particular purposes. And, like, I was going to ask, you know, how do you draw a distinction between technology that might be life-giving and, and technology that isn't? And, and I realise in your answer about, about the printing press, like, none of it is either one or the other, but is it about how you frame it or, or how it's understood through not just, um, you know, law, say, or... or um, or, you know, kind of technical understandings, but in fact, like cultural ones as well. Is that a better way to understand what your project is, I suppose, in this book? I, I think it is, Lizzie. And um, I write in the book about, um, it's a bit of a mouthful, but you know, te techno-scientific capitalism. And, and my idea here, so th this is, this is if you like, the, 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 the sort of technological and, and come political, come economic ensemble that concerns me most. So this is how I try to think of it and I agree with you know your your um example of the carrier bag is excellent and there are other technologies as well which of course you wouldn't want to be without you know anesthetics is an, is an obvious one right um you know absolutely uh life-changing um but history changing but um techno-scientific capitalism what, what's happened and it's had deep roots goes right back to the enlightenment where people began to sort of view the universe as a sort of a, a gigantic mechanism, you know, different parts which are kind of set set in train by the other parts, more or less, like with a view of humanity as well that sort of emerged from that. It goes right back to 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 the Enlightenment and to the scientific revolution. What's happened is that science, generally speaking, broadly speaking, and 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 very roughly speaking, science which used to do, enjoy a degree of autonomy, if you like, as natural philosophy, as it used to be called, has now been largely subordinated to questions of practical utility. That's to say, it's been subordinated to the much older enterprise that we call technological development. And those two things together, and, th and that's done a couple of things come from that. One, it means that the theoretical has blended with the practical in a way that you can see, for example, in the Los Alamos um, experiment, which basically took an equation that Einstein didn't think had any practical application in the world and gave it practical uh, application. That's to say, this is not a process that occurs anywhere on Earth. It reached back, if you like, into pre-nature, into the heart of stars to give effect to something utterly transformative. So that's one thing. The other thing is that both of those things together have now been largely subordinated to the market, to profit, to capital. 
etc. So this is the big cultural shift that's happened, it seems to me. And of course, yes, you're absolutely right. Not all of technologies, technology falls into that category because most technologies that we have and use precede that world. You know, the pe- the pencil, you know, there's no need to fit the pencil into that <laughs> into that frame. But what I want, but what I want to do in thinking culturally about it, as you say, is to make the point that this is what's new and that the new and emerging technologies, technologies that have the potential to transform the world, you know, to to not merely to bend capricious nature to our will, but to intervene in it at the smallest levels, at the level of the atom in nanotechnology and nuclear um, power, at the level of the cell, at the level of the molecule, up to and including, as we know, human DNA molecules, you know, with CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing now. So this is huge, you know, and, and, and these areas are converging in a way that makes all of the single areas, the nanotech, the, the genetics, etc., very much more powerful. It's it. mm-hmm. we, we couldn't have mapped the human genome, for example, if it hadn't been for uh, AI. But um, but yeah, that's that's what I want to uh, say in the book. And, and, it, and it is there, it follows from that, that it's now very important to sort of blow the dust of this more techno-critical way of looking at technology uh, with a view to subjecting it to that kind of cultural uh, analysis. Can we round up the conversation with a question, which is, are there any stories or songs that can help us think our way through? Like, I think literature has been great at making us aghast, but what is the way through here, um, if you're our guide? Well, songs, um, stories, I... I don't know. Start with Frankenstein, I guess. That's that. That's a pretty good place to start. It's kind of quite, it pops up quite early on in the book. So uh, I find it difficult to get away from that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've, you know, I mean, much as I hate to say it because I love the movies, probably avoid Kubrick and all that sort of stuff, because I don't think, I, I think that kind of leads us away from what we really need to think about. I suppose what I would say about, you know, how we go forward, uh, and it's a slightly dull answer to, to your to your more colourful question, is that um, we need to repoliticize um technology. And I mean, really, I, I mean, beyond the beyond questions of regulation, it needs to become, again, uh, central to the question of how we live in community with others. And there was a lot of that stuff around in the 1960s and the 1970s as the left became less Promethean and began to question the role of technology in society, Frankfurt School stuff. Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, all that sort of thing. A movement, by the way, as Lizzie will will know, to which uh, women were far more central than they had been um, in uh, left discourse up to that point. And uh, we ne- so we need to repoliticize it. Um, it. I find it incredible. Um, well, you know, e- even parties now that are sort of nominally socially, you know, it's fairly radically social democratic are quite techno solutionist in in their approach to the world um and what uh, if there's one point i would like to make it's that we need to um yes we need technological innovation i'm excited about um 3d printing you know i'm excited excited about renewables of course i am excited about um zero marginal cost technologies of of different kinds um But we also need, you know, that needs to be cut with political and social and economic innovation as well. And it's only then that 
you can build it into a, a you can you can you can really think radically about the future and that means you know ch- uh, you know <laughs> it's not the work it's not the work of a year it's not the work of a decade it's the work of many decades i'm sure but that means changing what we teach in schools it means changing the way we consume and produce it means bringing things closer to communities it means you know permaculture products it means you know not thinking not just about you know chat gpt uh, and how we're going to fit it into education but whether we want to spend so much time on computers at all or indeed whether we want to be spending so much time writing at all why aren't kids outside you know, in the school garden, thinking about what they can and can't grow or, you know, as per the old um, industrial workshops that they used to have in the US, you know, <laughs> learning how to learning how to work on their houses and all that sort of thing. Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, just, you know, building that into the system in that way. And that's before, of course, you get to the big ticket stuff like, you know, socializing google <laughs> and getting the and getting the new internet that 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 dan was speaking so eloquent, eloquently about you know which i'm all for you know it's amazing to me you know just to, just as a sidebar on this that my you know so many people in my one of the things i do is, is just a bit of tutoring and so many people in that cohort you know t- teachers lecturers and so on are very sort of incorporationist when it comes to these things like chat gpt you know and it only, it only emerged a few months ago. I set my students uh, uh, a question on um, an essay on ChatGPT. I don't mean I asked them. I don't mean I got them to write it on ChatGPT, but about ChatGPT. Although some of them obviously got confused. But uh, anyway, you know, they're all very fatalistic. It's like you know, this thing is in the world now. We need to get. We, we need to live with it and all this sort of thing. And and a lot of the lecturers are like that too. This is a cohort that jumped up and down for fifteen years about bloody wikipedia you know mm-hmm. and wikipedia is a great website isn't mm-hmm. it you know and not yeah. only is it a great website but it's the internet we could have had well we didn't get on, it on that note final thoughts and reflections thanks richard i've just got a pretty hard finish for this session i should say before we do final thoughts and reflections just that the three of us lizzie dan and i are going to be on a panel at south by southwest in a couple of weeks on the wednesday if you are going to be around um, Sydney for that event, come and say hi. Um, Lizzie. The last thing I'll say is I think the pitch for understanding what the world should be like in relation to technology is the ones who walk away from Omelas because that's a, it's a Le Guin novel or the stor- short story which actually says that uh, none of us are free until all of us are free and uh, if a, a utopian society, whether it's technological or not, depends on the oppression of people, we need to say no. So I think there is some literature there that follow that gives you a path through and, and that's one example. Um, yeah. And it's a great critique, if I may just barge in, it's a great critique of utilitarianism and shows you why <laughs> utilitarianism can't ground moral philosophy. And utilitarianism is central to capitalism, of course. On that note, thanks everyone. Um I can't I don't even have time for Dan's final reflection. Got to be at Punch Bowl at three thirty. <laughs> See you guys. Have a good Bye. one. Bye. See you folks. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded on October 5 and produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again soon.